This is the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. 1037 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Making his way to the podcasting ring. Hailing from the heart of Cajun country. It's me. It's me. It's the world famous CD. Let's ring the bell and get this party started off right. And welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast episode number 70. And it is so darn good to be back with you. After a little bit of a weird week where things just kind of, obviously we had Hurricane Ida. thought I was going to tape the podcast that weekend before, but then things kind of changed. And I just kind of had a little bit of a messed up week. But we're back at it again, episode 70, and it's the perfect time to come back after a little bit of a mini vacation. Been, been weird with the schedule. We're going to try and make that better before too long. But let's go ahead and get down to brass tacks here. This is going to be strictly all about All Out, possibly one of the greatest pay-per-views of all time because there was just so much going on at once. I kind of ran out of you know words to say outside of holy bleep every time and full disclosure actually want to catching some of this delayed and then watched it all the way through in multiple chunks on monday that's why this thing was delayed a little bit and the fact it was labor day so i was kind of enjoying it. a little bit of an extra little half day here inside the delta media studios that said let's get right into it start off with the buy-in it was an 10-man tag, and my God, there were so many people involved in this. It's hard to keep track. You had the Hardy front office taking on the Jurassic Express, the team of Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus, and best friends, Orange Cassidy, Chuck Taylor, and Wheeler Yuta. Obviously, you got Trent still dealing with that spinal fusion surgery, still recovering. He'll be back sooner rather than later, at least I hope. But the first thing that came to mind was... Jungle Boy, and I've said it a while back, when he had that match against MJF, I think it was on one of the buy-in matches on either Double or Nothing, or somewhere, it was somewhere along those lines. Jungle Boy is on the verge of being an absolute, like, mega star. Give him probably a year or two in my mind, and he's going to be AEW champion. The crowd loves him. The music is absolutely kicking ass every single time you hear Tarzan Boy. The crowd just absolutely eats it up. And you can just see he's over as hell. And, like, they did it right. We'll talk about the match in a moment. And one of the things, it's just Jungle Boy, Jungle Jack Perry, has a motor that goes, like, 0 to 100 in, like, a second. Because he'll just absolutely, like, turn the speed up and the pace up of the match. And that was perfect with most everybody that was involved in this contest. Obviously, Luchasaurus got a lot of his big boy stuff in. But when you think about it, you got Jungle Boy and Helico and Jack Evans, who have been wrestling forever, but they can still wrestle an X Division style or a Cruiserweight style. Then you obviously you have Private Party, who also has a motor on him and can kind of go for a while. This was a really fun 10-man tag. Got the crowd warmed up. At one point, they had a really cool, and again, I love this spot from time to time. It's just the way they do it, the, the creativeness of doing a multiple submission spot, and this was one of those. And then you have Luchasaurus break it up. He takes over for a little bit. They had a walkie double team spot. I just don't know how to exactly put this. But if you go watch it back, it looks like Private Party did this in like half speed. The setup just wasn't necessarily crisp or anything. I was like, what the hell's going on? Wasn't necessarily the best look in the world. But then you have Chuck Taylor. He came in the match. The match went into fourth gear at this point. Chuck Taylor's taking over. Orange does his signature hands in his pockets. The crowd is going nuts to butts for this. 
And it's always cool, like, seeing him do the head scissors with the pockets. It was typical Orange Cassie stuff, but it was entertaining. Then at one point, possibly my favorite part of the match, and probably Jim Cornette's least favorite part of the match, was when Luchasaurus put Jungle Boy on his shoulders, and it was a game of chicken between Angelico and Jack Evans. I was like, what the hell? Then I started realizing, oh my god, they're doing some cool stuff with this. Then you have a modified Doomsday device. You have Private Party trying to take care of business and trying to take out Jungle Boy. At one point, you have a crossbody. Jungle Boy catches it, turns it into a moonsault slam, almost like it's like a super fallaway slam, but it wasn't because he didn't let him go. So that was an awesome spot, and the way it looked was so damn like smooth. And then Jungle Boy locks in the snare trap, actually gets a submission win, and this was the great, you know, warming the crowd up, hot 10-man tag, and to me, right man got the pinfall. I think that's where I was in this. Jungle Boy got it. The crowd went nuts. You started hearing the music start playing. The crowd's waving their hands in sync. I was eating every last bit of that ish up. So I was absolutely enamored by all of that. Three links to Budan match for me. Again, I can never give a undercard five stars, but this was really good stuff. Then we get to the post-match schmas, best friends hug, but then we see HFO run in and Butcher, he returns and destroys Orange Cassie with a lariat. They tease cutting Orange's hair, but a bunch of the lower card bait faces like Varsity Blondes, best friends, they all run in to stop the haircut from happening. All the faces do the hug to end the segment. And I was like, okay, this is a really good open, a really good start to the show. Things are going in a decent pace. Then we get to the TNT Championship match, Eddie Kingston versus Miro. First off, Eddie Kingston's T-shirt, Redeemed These Nuts, is an all-timer. The promo he had was awesome on Friday night on Rampage, the go-home show. So glad to be able to, be able to catch a little bit of that before I watch All Out. This absolutely was amazing. And also, this is going to be me gushing about Excalibur for a little bit, and I'll bring it up again later. Excalibur does a great job in terms of compiling notes that are just the most obscure things, but for the wrestling fan in me and the guy that likes to hear about the realism and sports presentation of it, I talked about a lot with Ring of Honor. This is a prime example of doing this the right way. And I wish more companies like the WWE, WWE or even Impact Wrestling were to do something like this. And that's explain, hey, you know, here's his efficiency stats and breaking down stats and facts about these wrestlers, these combatants. That way it gives you an idea of what you can expect. And I feel like it's also just really cool to establish, like Miro, he has very short matches as the TNT champion. He just dominates his opponents, his efficiency. That's something that you key in on because then you could say, hey, if the match goes longer, maybe Miro isn't necessarily great in terms of cardio and Eddie Kingston could catch him slipping. It's stuff like that. It's little things that make me a, even more a fan of Excalibur and this like commentary team. Still not a fan of four team, four man booths, but the three man booth is growing on me when it comes to AEW and they're doing the right things. And this is a really good main card opener. Miro tries the game over early. Then you have Kingston trying to go for the half and half. And then you see Miro just run out of the ring right away. 
After that, hard-hitting as hell. These two were just absolutely beating the crap out of each other. At one point, Eddie Kingston goes for a dive. I was like, okay, this is a little bit different. Lo and behold, Miro catches Eddie midair, and Eddie's not a small guy. Catches him midair and body slams him. I was like, oh, my God, that was so cool. And that's what makes Miro just so damn impressive because he's got that strength and not burying him with like a bad gimmick or saddling him with Rusev Day. You are actually making him just be what he is, and that is a absolute bleeping beast. And then at one point we get these two just absolutely just beating the tar out of each other. They're just striking each other every single time. At one point Miro just bruised up as hell in his chest because some of the, many of those chops kept hitting. Miro gets the game over in on Eddie, but Kingston gets to the bottom rope. The crowd goes nuts for it. Then Eddie, who talked about it all throughout the, his promo leading up to this, actually went for the DDT. That got a 2.75. I was like, oh, man, so close. It looked like things were going to go Eddie's way. Eddie Kingston tries for the half and half, but Miro hits a low blow. Then the Machka kick, and then takes care of business with the game over. It's all over. And Miro retains the title. And this was a really solid opener. The energy was there and the intrigue was there. Because I felt like at first, it's like, okay, Miro's going to win this one. You can't wind up taking the belt off of him this soon. I think if they're going to give Kingston a title, it's going to be over in New York when they go to Arthur Ashe Stadium. Because I feel like that's the right way to go about it. That said, this was a really good match. Typical big man match. Four links of Budan for me. That was cool. Moxley is up next, taking on Satoshi Kojima, and this was exactly what you'd expect. First off, him having the GCW hoodie hoodie was absolutely awesome. And Kojima, immediately after the bell rings, goes for a handshake, but John wants absolutely none of it, and they start chopping the hell out of each other. Kojima teases that lariat, but Mox moves out the way. Moxley takes over and is just walking to him in the corner, Kojima then hits those machine gun chops. And I gave credit to John at one point. He just immediately just fell down. Like, that was the right way to kind of sell it. It wasn't necessarily over the top. Like, I've seen a certain wrestler by the name of Big Daddy Yum Yum. Names probably be redacted going forward. But he wound up having a match similar where it was like the multi-chops. And he just acted like it was like, ah, he was overselling it. Moxley sold it like it was death. And that's exactly what you needed to do. In this match between two guys who were just going at it and beating the tar out of each other. Kojima had a top rope elbow for a two count. Both combatants were on the top rope. Kojima winds up biting Moxley in the head, in like on the forehead, and then hits a superplex. Then Kojima tries for the Koji Cutter. Counters into the Bulldog Choke. John gets a two count after locking, and then he locks in a cross arm breaker right after trying to get the submission win. Satoshi gets into the ropes. Then Kojima hits a brain buster for two, teases the lariat, then move, Mox moves out of the way. Then we get to the favorite spot of all like spots of, of the match and probably of the night. Lariat, lariat, lariat. Every single spot is just absolutely, like every single hit is lariats for about like a minute to 90 seconds. And that's what you love. Then he want, Moxley, I was like, what the hell just happened? He wound up hitting the wacky line, kind of sort. He didn't do the whole, you know, Go all the way back in the chair or the rope and then fly back in. No, but it definitely reminded me a lot of the wacky line in WWE when he did that. 
thankfully it wasn't that because I would have been like, no, they're going to have them do that again. But it it made sense, and it worked for the match itself because they were just absolutely beating the tar out of each other. Moxley does that, then hits a pair of paradigm shifts in the finish to get the win. This was strong style, damn good stuff. The things that I love in pro wrestling, four and a half links of Bune, and then it gets better. All of a sudden you hear Kaze Ninare starts playing on the screen, on the on the PAs, and all of a sudden you see Minoru Suzuki's name pop up. We're getting Minoru Suzuki coming out, and he's out of the tunnel. Crowd goes wild. Moxley's like, oh, God, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. And then they come out, and they just start wailing on each other. They no-sell all the big strikes. Suzuki locks in the bulldog choke, then hits the God-style pile driver. Ends the segment. And instead of giving that to us at All Out, AEW's doing us a solid and putting this on free TV this Wednesday on Dynamite. I was like, what the hell's going on? What world are we in? And I can't wait to see that match. It's going to be hard-hitting as bleep, and I think it's going to be absolutely one of my favorite matches of the year. Not match of the year, because I think we know which one I'm going to talk about later that is bar none match of the year. And I'm just going to say it right now. That tag team title match was the match of the year. So we get to the AEW Women's Championship. Chris Statlander, Britt Baker wasn't necessarily too like hyped up about it. Statlander is great, but I feel like Breaker, Britt, Britt Baker is at a different level, and Chris needed more time to kind of build this story up. Felt like it was rushed a little bit. Statlander goes for the spider crab, almost immediately gets out, then Baker gets out of it. Statlander immediately like boops Britt Baker a couple of moments later. And I popped for it. Huge. It was absolutely really good. Baker took over after top row Fisherman's neck breaker, which looked gruesome. Statlander wound up going to the outside right after. Then they just started fighting. Baker wound up smashing Statlander's face. Basically put her two like feet on the side, besides her head, jumped up. And then you saw Statlander's face just go right down onto the apron, the hardest part of the ring. Statlander does rally, though, with a ton of big strikes in the women's champ. Baker snuffs that momentum out with a sling blade. Statlander then replies with a fisherman buster for two, which looked fantastic. Then you had a spike DDT by Britt for two. Looked like, like literally, it was a spike. Like She landed on the top of her head. I was like, woof. Baker kept trying to get the lockjaw in, but Statlander countered. She at one point hit an electric chair face buster and then a big scissor cook for two. For two. And then this was a really awesome sequence of events because Chris Statlander is trying to take care of Britt Baker on the outside. Chris Statlander tries to hit a pendulum moonsault, which in and of itself, it's a great move. But then Baker moves out of the way. Statlander misses. And then Baker hits a curb stomp aided by the steel steps. She basically starts running and then jumps on the steps and then lands right on Statlander's head. And that's a two count. After she gets her in the ring, Britt Baker eventually gets in control with a Pittsburgh sunrise for two. The stomp gets a two count. Then Baker gets a lockjaw in. She's like, screw it. I'm just going to go and lock this bad boy in and retains the AEW Women's Championship. Finish was really good. Fast pace. Very fun contest. Give me four links to boot in for that one. Now we get to the AEW World Tag Team title match. This was, without a doubt, probably match of the night, if not match of the year, according to everybody. 
this was just really cool in it, like from the buildup. Because first off, you got Lucha Brothers with their awesome attire, which I think I'm hoping is in the game. Can you also had a live performance from the band that performs the Lucha Bros theme song? It was a little out of sync, but it was still cool to see. And then the Young Bucks look out of their mind. And again, this is Excalibur. I'm bringing up props because it's the long-term storytelling that just hooks me a lot of times. And seeing the fact that he keeps bringing up the fact that these two fought in the past and the last time they did wrestle was back at All Out 2019, the first ever All Out. And when those two faced off, it was for the AAA Tag Team titles and the Lucha Bros in their only AEW match wound up winning the entire damn thing in that Escalera de la Muerte match. Really love that because, again, it's long-term storytelling but also telling you a story and making sure, hey, if you haven't watched these guys before, go out and go watch this match and then go check this out because this is going to be amazing. You're guaranteed to get like a five-star classic out of these two, and I think these two damn near exceeded my star rating scale. I wasn't going to go full Meltzer, but this one came pretty close. Young Bucks look out of their gourd. You know, it's insane. They get a big stare down. Two teams go at it. Young Bucks try to escape the cage. Then I think we get to like some dosy do spots, and I love the fact that we actually got that. And then the Lucha Bros hit their kicks in the corner to take momentum away. A big Hurricane Rana by Phoenix that led to the... I, I think they called this the perineal Punisher, but I have no idea if that's actually what it is or how to spell it. When I was writing it down in my notes, I was like, holy hell, that was really cool. Then we get to a lot of other stuff, like a dive to the into the cage, and they take over. And this is something else. I love the setup for the like cage. It's a lot different than any other cage I've seen. And AW nailed it because they've got a setup to where there's enough distance between you and the cage, and it's so big and huge nobody's going to want to be able to climb that damn thing before getting hit because it's over 20 feet tall. It's way taller, at least from what it looked like, is way taller than a WWE ring. And I have the fact that, it, or cage, I should say, and it helps the fact that it's also a smaller ring, apparently. I think it's an 18 by 18, not a 20 by 20. So that was a little bit different. But when Penta got stuck in the between the cage and the ring, it reminded me a lot of blood and guts. And this was really cool. It's Always fun to see this kind of spot because then it makes it makes the Young Bucks look like even more of heels. Then Phoenix gets choked by Nick. Matt tries for the power bomb to the outside. Phoenix counters, and the Lucha Bros take control once again. And this thing flies like a million miles an hour. Ray Phoenix gets a big kick on his opponent. Then Penta hits the Penta driver. That gets a two count. Assisted Swanton for two. Phoenix eats a pair of super kicks for his efforts. Great double team with a drop kick into a tombstone pile driver. BTE trigger misses. Bucks tease the melter driver, but Phoenix gets out of the way, and the Knicks starts kicking low like his name is Bobby Hill. He is kicking right in the groin every single time. I was like, oh, I am hurting. I am feeling sorry for him right about now. Then you have the Bucks ripping the mask, and Callus, the fans straight hate him right now. He's talking about this, these two guys, it's fine. It's perfectly legal. It's not in Mexico. He's obviously in Mexico. You rip up the mask and it gets taken off. It's a disqualification. But they did a great job doing this because then Cutler throws a bag over the cage 
and Nick takes his shoe off to reveal a shoe with, and he wound up putting on another shoe that had thumbtacks on it. Penta's busted wide open and gets busted open even more, which was such a stunning visual. Him just drenched in blood with his mask just wide open. It was a great opportunity to do that. All the way here for it. Then we get to just an absolute war. And Penta at one point sacrifices himself to save his younger brother from the super kick of doom. And basically was about probably about to die. But then Penta gets thrown right into the shoe with attacks. Matt has a Yakuza kick to lay him out. Phoenix gets hit with a super kick. Then a BTE trigger on Penta. And Phoenix breaks up the count with a 2.9. A 2.9. This is at the point when the match just goes completely nuts to butts. Phoenix House of Fire attacks everybody with the shoes. Then hits a Black Fire Driver, which is like a modified muscle buster for 2.99999. I was like, what the hell? That was awesome. We saw a dueling package pile driver by the older brothers on the younger brothers. That was a really cool move. And then you saw a topper of Canadian destroyer from Penta. These four are dead tired, but they still are pulling out all the stops. A fear factor gets a 2.9. Matt broke up the pinfall. Penta then tells Phoenix to go to the top. Looks like they're going to try a super duper fear factor, but nothing doing. Phoenix just says, screw it. I'm going to go ahead and dive and hits a massive crossbody off the top of the cage. And then they team up for a spike pile driver. And we have new AEW Tag Team Champions. This was so damn good. Match of the year. Five links to Budan. No doubt about it. I've put a lot of fives. I've never put up more. I'm going to try not to do that unless I see something that I consider probably one of the greatest matches of all time. But this one was amazing. I need to take a minute. When we come back. We're going to continue the conversation about AEW All Out, and we're going to continue it with the Casino Battle Royale. So keep it locked right here on the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Welcome back to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 103.7 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Hopefully you're having a great time listening to it so far. And we'll keep it going with the Casino Battle Royale Always a point of contention, I think, for a lot of people is whether or not this is actually good or not. And I think they're getting better at putting these together. I think, obviously, you don't need to do them every single pay-per-view. But if you have to, they're getting better at doing so. It's still relatively predictable. It feels kind of like like a hot mess after the first set of people come in. But this was a really good start. So you had the first five be Hikaru Shida, Sky Blue, who's replacing Julia Hart, who suffered an injury at the most recent dark taping that aired, I believe, on Saturday, if I'm not mistaken. But you had Emi Sakura with Lulu Pencil at ringside. I was like, oh, my God, that's really cool. Then you had the bunny and then Abaddon. I forgot Abaddon was the thing. Apparently, she looked like a zombie version of Rufio. If you watch Hook, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about Taz's son, Hook. I'm talking about the actual movie with Robin Williams. Go check it out if you haven't already. All of a sudden, Hikaru Shida and Sakura go at a right away. Excalibur, again, brought up the fact that they're rivalry, so it made sense considering. These all tilt-a-whirl backbreakers damn near everywhere. Then eventually the bunny winds up taking out the living dead girl after Abaddon took out Sky Blue because she was posing, which I saw a lot, which is an ongoing theme. I wish they didn't do that, but still good. As time expired, you had... Sak- Imi Sak- excuse me, Hikaru Shida in a 
Romero special by Emmy Sakura. And that was a really cool spot. After that, get Bunny just hopping around the ring. Not literally, but you could tell she had a little bit of a more skip in her step, which I liked. Then you saw another group come in. This is the Diamonds. They come out next. Anna Jay goes right after the Bunny. Again, kind of playing off of the storyline between those two that we saw during the go-home shows on Dynamite. Then you have Kiara Hogan, Kylan King, Diamante, and Nyla Rose. And Amy Sakura quickly eliminated after Sheeta hits a knee strike on Diamante. Is yeah, it was weird. Sakura was on the apron. Then you had Kira Hogan. No, Diamante, excuse me. On the other side, then you saw her hit a knee strike. It was very strange. But it was interesting to see that. Then Kiara Hogan gets kicked out of the match in short order. I didn't even see who eliminated her, to be honest with you. Nala Rose throws out Kylan King and then dumps Sheeta straight out, like powerbomb style, right after. Looked great. Now all the heels are starting to gang up on the Bayface and a J, but eventually the four remaining combatants start facing off with each other. Then we get to the next group. Thunder Rosa comes out, immediately goes for Nyla Rose, continuing their feud. Penelope, Penelope Ford goes after Anna Jay to help out her friend. Jamie Hayter runs in. Then Big Swole comes in, and the fans love her. Like, her entrance, they immediately just pop like crazy to see her in the squared circle. Rosa had a badass-looking dropkick on Rose, like, pretty early on. Great sell from the Native Beast. And it was relatively boring here in terms of that grouping. Then we get to see, you know, Rebel gets eliminated not long after. She probably got eliminated pretty quickly, I should say. No, excuse me, I'm missing a whole other group. So the next group was the Spades, and it was Ty Conti. Goes after the bunny, again, helping out her friend. Hits Ty KO. Red Velvet's out. Then Layla Hirsch, and she suplexes Penelope Ford, like, right away. Jake Cargo out next, and then Rebel rolls into the contest. Leading us with just the Joker. Rebel gets eliminated really quickly, and it was a wonky-ass spot, and she probably got hurt because I, I just don't understand what she was trying to do there. It was a mess of a spot. Thankfully, it was only real botch that I could just see outright, that I could just tell was, oh, wait, this was kind of scuffed. Then you see Ford throws out Jay, and then Ty Conti's looking for revenge. Jay throws out Layla Hirsch over the top rope with relative ease. And then we get to the Joker. It's Ruby Soho, the former Ruby Riot, and they use the rancid music. I sat there, I was like, they better use the rancid music or I'm going to be so pissed. And they actually got the rights to it, which was tremendous. And Jamie Hayter, she gets thrown out by Jade Cargill like, almost immediately after the, after Ruby comes out. Taikanti throws out Penelope, but Rose gets her out. And we're down to the final three, Thunder Rosa, Nyla Rose, and Ruby Soho. And Nala just abuses her, the, the other two members of this match. Then Thunder Rose eventually eliminates Nyla Rose to bring it down to the final two. This is a great final two sequence. Rosa has Ruby in the Death Valley driver position. Looks like she's going to want to come away with a win. Ruby gets out of it. It's a big kick to the dome to help herself to a AEW Women's Championship opportunity this Wednesday on Dynamite. Three and three quarters links to Buna. They're getting better at doing a battle royale. But honestly, I'd rather not have that every single time we do a pay-per-view. Not necessarily needed. 
Then we get to Chris Jericho, MJF, which we desperately needed. This was probably one of my favorite stories heading into the pay-per-view. Is this the last we'll see of Chris Jericho? We shall see. And first off, the entrances were amazing here. MGF has the old Chris Jericho countdown clock as part of his entrance. That was great. The epic robe he had. So damn good. The Jericho comes out with his actual guitars for Fozzie is playing Judas. The crowd is serenading him, which is a really good shot. And the fact that you can actually have this, if you wanted to have Jericho lose, you could have framed it as his last match, wanted to let the fans sing it one more time. Really cool stuff. Jericho teased the walls of Jericho early on, but MGF got a quick roll-up for two. And we get to see more of that early on. And MGF at one point tears up a bunch of signs, and JR winds up saying something along the lines of not wanting to use any pronouns going forward, which I pop for because obviously pronouns, pal. Is kind of a thing. Then we get to see MJF. He just is going crazy in this match. You see, he wants to get this win. They start brawling to the outside. Jericho hit like through a stanchion, whatever the hell that was. It was basically it was almost like a giant stick or something, and just threw it straight at MJF's head. And no disqualification call, which was weird. I don't think they announced no DQ in this. But I'm sure it's more loose in rules because obviously you want to see a winner and a loser. If somebody's deliberately doing something to try and get DQ, it's a different conversation. But you could have you could have done a DQ in that spot. But they didn't. And they wanted to keep the match going. Thank God they did, because MGF was just so damn cocky the whole time of this match. At certain points he's humping the air. Then he hits the Fargo strut. And then he winds up at one point hitting the heat seeker on the ring apron, which was awesome. I was like, this is exactly what I wanted to see something like that pop up. Then at one point, MJF gets up on the apron, does an acai moonsault. I've never seen him do a high high spot. And that was freaking cool. He misses it, but then Jericho counters, hits him with a hurricane rana, and then uh, counters him. MJF's trying the hurricane rana. And then power bombs him right on the ring apron. And MGF sold that like death. Jericho tried to hit the super hurricane run after the 10 punches. But MGF countered with a power bomb of his own. And he was in so much damn pain. It was ridiculous. And again, I was thinking about this throughout the match. It was very much Jericho playing the hits. And they brought that up on commentary as well. Some of the matches, some of the moves had a callback to another match that happened during the labors. Which was a great idea. Then we get to a code breaker by Chris Jericho. Wardlow runs in. Hager runs out as well. In the middle of the ruckus, MGF like clocks Jericho with Floyd. And then he gets the pin. One, two, three. But Jericho's foot is on the rope. Aubrey Edwards doesn't see it right away. I believe this was Paul Turner comes out and demands the match get started up. And restarted. Aubrey agrees. And we restart the match. Jericho almost rolled up MGF straight away. Then MGF locks in the arm breaker, but Jericho counters out and then puts him in the walls of Jericho for the first time all match. And Jericho wins by submission, which was a great ending. And it wasn't a swerve for the sake of a swerve. That's the thing that I like the most about this match. It wasn't necessarily to put it together and frame it as a, you know, a swerve where he wins due to like a dirty finish. 
they did the dusty finish right. And in my book, that's all you're going to ask for if you're an AEW fan. So this one gets a four and a half Lincoln Boudin rating. And I was I was loving it. That said, I've got to put CM Punk Darby Allen next. This is what I was like absolutely waiting for. Would have loved to have seen this as the main event, but it made sense why they did what they did. This absolutely kicked ass. Again, great entrances. Darby Allen diving off a helicopter was pretty freaking cool. Darby and Sting dap up. Sting leaves and lets him handle his business after he said it early in the week that he was just going to go to the back. Punk comes out. Crowd's going wild. He's wearing pants, which is almost like semi-cursed in my mind. And I'll say this. This wasn't a, like, great technical match, but you can tell there were moments where you were like, okay, this is really freaking cool. And that's what they did. Like, right away, before they even locked up, they were chanting holy bleep the entire time. And I was like, I agree with you. And this was like a basic match early on. Like, very much you saw the headlock spots, the drop downs, all that. Like, stuff you don't see much these days. So you have that. It was a really cool, like, match put together. Kept teasing the GTS all match. And then when, like, Darby actually gets hit with the GTS, he just practically flew to the outside. Punk teased it again. Allen gets out of it. Darby does an amazing suicide dive. Like the way he just flies is always amazing. A top rope swanton to the outside. Allen goes for the coffin drop. But then all of a sudden, CM Punk sits up like The Undertaker at the most perfect time. And then Darby tries to get the last supper in. Punk kicks out. Lands a big kick to the head of Allen. Allen teases the poison Rana, but Punk counters it. Hits the GTS for the win. Hard-hitting, entertaining stuff here for about 20, 25 minutes. And four and a half links to Boudin. It's crazy to think that CM Punk still got it. And I think Darby may be like, bad bleep crazy and reckless as hell, but he's probably one of the best hands that AEW has. And he proved that a couple years ago at Fighter Fest, taking on Cody Rhodes. He's proved it again by taking CM Punk, a guy who hadn't had a match in seven years, and put together a high-quality match. That's what you want if you're AEW, is for your megastar who got even more over in losing. So everything was done perfectly. Now we get to where it's the Paul White and Paul White taking on QT Marshall. Just a quick rundown. Paul White won. That was about it. Like nothing much really happened. It was gonna be it was basically a glorified squash match on a pay-per-view. Again, I understand why they did it. Now we get to the AEW World Heavyweight Championship, the main event of the night. Christian Cage, Kenny Omega, and Christian first off rocking the jacket like he did in the TNA days. Kenny Omega being mentioned as the longest reigning champion in history, which is crazy to think about because of the fact they only have three champions. Like they've put an emphasis on championships. The TNT titles had the title change hands, but you've never seen it be hot potatoing like crazy, like you see in like the WWE, where you see titles just like move about like crazy. Overall, this was a fun match. It just wasn't as great as some of the other matches I've seen, you know, Kenny Half. 
we get to see some really cool spots here and there. And there was like so much going on, especially once they got to the outside. I was kind of surprised they had that much time to where they fought for a few minutes on the outside, way longer than the 10 count. Again, I understand why they do it because they don't want to have it be any screwy finishes. I get it, but it just takes me out of it a little bit after being like conditioned a certain way, especially when we saw matches earlier, like the Chris Statlander, Britt Baker match where Chris Statlander was outside the ring trying to beat the 10 count. And you heard the referee get to eight, get to nine. You didn't get to see, you didn't see as much emphasis on that in this title match, especially when both of them were outside the ring at the same time. At one point, Kenny hits the double foot stomp on the table. I've seen that spot so many times in Japan, but the table never breaks. This one did, which looked even better. And I pop for Kenny going through the, did I do that? Kenny teases putting Christian through the table. Paul Turner gets these two back in the ring. Finally, after a few minutes, and this is, again, back and forth. They're, like, laying chops in. Kenny Omega throws, like, Christian, like, hammer throws him into the corner. Then Ushiguroshi gets a two count. And they just go back and forth. Nobody really gains any true momentum for, like, five or six minutes. Christian runs towards Kenny, but a knee strike by Omega stops him completely dead in his tracks. Cage hits a spike DDT for two, and it looked like it really spiked him on his head. Tease the kill switch. Omega counters, hits a leg lariat to put Cage in the corner. V trigger right in the back of Cage's neck. Then it was Snapdragon Suplex City. He tries to tease one going through a table, but that didn't happen. Cage teases kill switch, but Omega counters and teases a one winged angel through the table, but then that doesn't happen. Christian then eventually, like, finally the table gets hit, speared, they go through, thing explodes, crowd goes nuts. We get back to the ring, Kenny Omega and Cage going back and forth. Cage at one point gets the Maple, the Texas Cloverleaf, or the Maple Leaf, locked in. Don Callis gets the Good Brothers to run in, plan is foiled. Cage goes for the kill switch, finally hits it, but Omega kicks out at 2.9. Callis comes out, Cage sends him off. Cage tries to do the super kill switch. Omega gets out of it, and it hits a freaking super one-winged angel. Every time I see this, like, oh, my God, that freaking rules. Omega retains. Four and a half links to Boudin. Fine stuff here. But I just didn't feel like it hit compared to other defenses. As I mentioned, it just felt like it wasn't, like, at the, like, top level. And mind you, at this point, you're four hours into a show that had, like, no real Bad matches. Yeah, the Paul White match was, was a two and a half Lincoln Boudet match, but it was just, you know, it was fine. Could have done without it in terms of the main card. It's a lot like how we saw at SummerSlam a few weeks ago. Some matches I did not feel like belonged on the card. This was fine. Just wasn't hitting as much as I thought it would, mind you. Probably the fact that I saw the best match of the year as a fourth or fifth match on the card. But we get to the post match. The Super League come out. They continue to attack Cage, and they beat up the Jurassic Express who tried to get the run in. Kenny cuts a promo saying, you know, he's the best in the world. Nobody can touch me. And the only people that could beat him are either not here, retired, or dead. Lights go out. Then all of a sudden you hear the new Adam Cole music all about that. Boom. Adam Cole's all elite, baby. I popped for that so hard. I was like, yes, we get to see this. And then they're thinking Cole's Bayface. Then Swerve, Superkicks, Jungle Boy, the Elite is even more stronger and obnoxious with Cole in the group. 
Maybe that plays a bigger storyline down the road. But damn good. Kenny goes for his whole goodbye, goodnight shtick. But then you hear Flight of the Valkyries come on. I was like, no way. It's Brian bleeping Danielson. This was so damn good. Then the baby faces start cleaning house and the show's over. Send the crowd home happy. I loved this show. This will go down probably as the show of the year amongst major promotions. And also, it's All Elite Wrestling firing a major shot towards the WWE. And in sports and talk, the sports radio, we talk a lot about dominant victories and statement victories. One of those for me, I think, is the Saints in 2009 when they beat the New England Patriots. Heading into that Super Bowl, during that Super Bowl season, they beat them and beat them bad on Monday Night Football. This was the definition of a statement victory by AEW. They hit it out of the park with one of their best shows ever. And that's crazy to think about. But compared to what they did to start the year, this was markedly better than Revolution, the way they handled that whole situation. This was nothing short of spectacular. And the story that was being told and the ending and the surprises, the debuts, the returns, all that stuff. It was all worth it. And AW did a great job. Now it's capitalizing on this. Striking while the iron is hot. That's going to be the ultimate test for all elite wrestling to get towards that next level. But that's about going to do it for the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. I'll talk to you next time. Hopefully I have a lot more than just all elite wrestling to talk about. I know we got a lot of big pay-per-views. Glory by Honor is going to be two nights. Hell, maybe we'll talk about it in next week's pod about the fact that possibly... Looks like we're going to get more of these two-night WrestleManias and maybe even more Wrestle Kingdom because apparently I was reading some reports. They're going three nights. It's absolutely insane. And also, we'll probably talk about the new NXT or whatever the hell they're going to do with that on next week's podcast. So until then, 